This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Frenzied Fiction by Stephen Leacock Part 14. Back from the Land I have just come back now, with the closing in of autumn, to the city. I have hung up my hoe in my study. My spade is put away behind the piano. I have with me seven pounds of Paris green that I had over. Anybody who wants it may have it. I didn't like to bury it for fear of its poisoning the ground. I didn't like to throw it away for fear of its destroying cattle. I was afraid to leave it in my summer place for fear that it might poison the tramps who generally break in in November. I have it with me now. I move it from room to room as I hate to turn my back upon it. Anybody who wants it, I repeat, can have it. I should also like to give away, either to the Red Cross or to anything else, ten packets of radish seed, the early curled variety, I think, fifteen packets of cucumber seed, the long succulent variety, I believe it says, and twenty packets of onion seed, the yellow Danvers, distinguished, I understand, for its edible flavor and its nutritious properties. It is not likely that I shall ever, on this side of the grave, plant onion seed again. All these things I have with me. My vegetables are to come after me by freight. They are booked from Simcoe County to Montreal. At present they are, I believe, passing through Schenectady. But they will arrive later, all right. They were seen going through Detroit last week, moving west. It is the first time that I ever sent anything by freight anywhere. I never understood before the wonderful organization of the railroads. But they tell me that there is a bad congestion of freight down south this month. If my vegetables get tangled up in that, there is no telling when they will arrive. In other words, I am one of the legion of men, quiet, determined, resolute men, who went out last spring to plant the land, and who are now back. With me, and I am sure that I speak for all the others as well, it was not a question of mere pleasure. It was no love of gardening for its own sake that inspired us. It was a plain national duty. What we said to ourselves was, this war has got to stop. The men in the trenches thus far have failed to stop it. Now let us try. The whole thing, we argued, is a plain matter of food production. If we raise enough food, the Germans are bound to starve. Very good. Let us kill them. I suppose there was never a more grimly determined set of men went out from the cities than those who went out last May, as I did, to conquer the food problem. I don't mean to say that each and every one of us actually left the city— but we all went forth in the metaphorical sense. Some of the men cultivated back gardens, others took vacant lots, some went out into the suburbs, and others, like myself, went right out into the country. We are now back. Each of us has with him his Paris green, his hoe, and the rest of his radish seed. The time has, therefore, come for a plain, clear statement of our experience. We have, as everybody knows, failed. We have been beaten back all along the line. Our potatoes are buried in a jungle of autumn burdocks. Our radishes stand seven feet high, uneatable. Our tomatoes, when last seen, were greener than they were at the beginning of August, and getting greener every week. Our celery looked as delicate as a maidenhair fern. Our Indian corn was nine feet high, with a tall feathery spike on top of that, but no sign of anything eatable about it from top to bottom. 
I look back with a sigh of regret at those bright early days in April when we were all buying hoes and talking soil and waiting for the snow to be off the ground. The street cars, as we went up and down to our offices, were a busy babble of garden talk. There was a sort of farmer-like geniality in the air. One spoke freely to strangers. Every man with a hoe was a friend. Men chewed straws in their offices and kept looking out of windows to pretend to themselves that they were afraid it might blow up rain. "'Got your tomatoes in?' one man would ask another as they went up in the elevator. "'Yes, I got mine in yesterday,' the other would answer. "'But I'm just a little afraid that this east wind may blow up a little frost. "'What we need now is growing weather.' "'And the two men would drift off together from the elevator door along the corridor, "'their heads together in friendly colloquy. "'I have always regarded a lawyer as a man without a soul. "'There is one who lives next door to me, to whom I have not spoken in five years.' Yet when I saw him one day last spring, heading for the suburbs in a pair of old trousers, with a hoe in one hand and a box of celery plants in the other, I felt that I loved the man. I used to think the stockbrokers were mere sordid calculating machines. Now that I have seen whole firms of them busy at the hoe, wearing old trousers that reached to their armpits and were tied about the waist with a polka-dot necktie, I know that they are men. I know that there are warm hearts beating behind those trousers." old trousers i say where on earth did they all come from in such a sudden fashion last spring everybody had them who would suspect that a man drawing a salary of ten thousand a year was keeping in reserve a pair of pepper and salt breeches four sizes too large for him just in case a war should break out against germany talk of german mobilization i doubt whether the organizing power was all on their side after all at any rate, it is estimated that 50,000 pairs of old trousers were mobilized in Montreal in one week. But perhaps it was not a case of mobilization or deliberate preparedness. It was rather an illustration of the primitive instinct that is in all of us, and that will out in wartime. Any man worth the name would wear old breeches all the time if the world would let him. Any man will find a polka-dot tie round his waist in preference to wearing patent braces, the makers of the ties know this. That is why they make the tie four feet long. And in the same way, if any manufacturer of hats will put on the market an old fedora with a limp rim and a mark where the ribbon used to be but is not, a hat guaranteed to be six years old, well weathered, well rained on, and certified to have been walked over by a herd of cattle, that man will make and deserve a fortune. These at least were the fashions of last May. Alas, where are they now? The men that wore them have relapsed again into tailor-made tweeds. They have put on hard new hats. They are shining their boots again. They are shaving again, not merely on Saturday night, but every day. They are sinking back into civilization. Yet those were bright times, and I cannot forbear to linger on them. Not the least pleasant feature was our rediscovery of the morning. My neighbor on the right was always up at five. My neighbor on the left was out and about by four. With the earliest light of day, little columns of smoke rose along our street from the kitchen ranges where our wives were making coffee for us before the servants got up. By six o'clock the street was alive and busy with friendly salutations. The milkman seemed a late-comer, a poor sluggish fellow who failed to appreciate the early hours of the day. A man, we found, might live through quite a little Iliad of adventure before going to his nine o'clock office. "'How will you possibly get time to put in a garden?' I asked one of my neighbors during this glad period of early spring before I left for the country. "'Time!' he exclaimed. 
"'Why, my dear fellow, I don't have to be down at the warehouse till eight thirty. "'Later in the summer I saw the wreck of his garden, choked with weeds. "'Your garden,' I said, "'is in poor shape. "'Garden?' he said indignantly. "'How on earth can I find time for a garden? "'Do you realize that I have to be down at the warehouse at eight thirty? "'When I look back to our bright beginnings, "'our failure seems hard indeed to understand.' It is only when I survey the whole garden movement in melancholy retrospect that I am able to see some of the reasons for it. The principal one, I think, is the question of the season. It appears that the right time to begin gardening is last year. For many things it is well to begin the year before last. For good results one must begin even sooner. Here, for example, are the directions, as I interpret them, for growing asparagus. Having secured a suitable piece of ground, preferably a deep friable loam rich in nitrogen, go out three years ago and plough or dig deeply. Remain a year inactive, thinking. Two years ago, pulverize the soil thoroughly. Wait a year. As soon as last year comes, set out the young shoots. Then spend a quiet winter doing nothing. The asparagus will then be ready to work at this year. This is the rock on which we were wrecked. Few of us were men of sufficient means to spend several years in quiet thought waiting to begin gardening. Yet that is, it seems, the only way to begin. Asparagus demands a preparation of four years. To fit oneself to grow strawberries requires three years. Even for such humble things as peas, beans, and lettuce, the instructions inevitably read, Plow the soil deeply in the preceding autumn. This sets up a dilemma. Which is the preceding autumn? If a man begins gardening in the spring, he is too late for last autumn, and too early for this. On the other hand, if he begins in the autumn, he is again too late. He has missed this summer's crop. It is therefore ridiculous to begin in the autumn, and impossible to begin in the spring. This was our first difficulty, but the second arose from the question of the soil itself. All the books and instructions insist that the selection of the soil is the most important part of gardening. No doubt it is. But if a man has already selected his own backyard before he opens the book, what remedy is there? All the books lay stress on the need of a deep, friable loam full of nitrogen. This I have never seen. My own plot of land I found on examination to contain nothing but earth. I could see no trace of nitrogen. I do not deny the existence of loam, there may be such a thing, but I am admitting now in all humility of mind that I don't know what loam is. Last spring my fellow gardeners and I all talked freely of the desirability of a loam. My own opinion is that none of them had any clearer ideas about it than I had. Speaking from experience, I should say that the only soils are earth, mud, and dirt. There are no others. But I leave out the soil. In any case, we were mostly forced to disregard it. Perhaps a more fruitful source of failure, even, than the lack of loam, was the attempt to apply calculation and mathematics to gardening. Thus, if one cabbage will grow in one square foot of ground, how many cabbages will grow in ten square feet of ground? Ten? Not at all. The answer is one. You will find, as a matter of practical experience, that however many cabbages you plant in a garden plot, there will be only one that will really grow. This you will presently come to speak of as the cabbage. Beside it all the others, till the caterpillars finally finish their existence, will look but poor lean things. 
but the cabbage will be a source of pride and an object of display to visitors. In fact, it would ultimately have grown to be a real cabbage, such as you buy for ten cents at any market, were it not that you inevitably cut it and eat it when it is still only half grown. This always happens to the one cabbage that is of decent size, and to the one tomato that shows signs of turning red. It is really a feeble green pink. And to the only melon that might have lived to ripen. They get eaten. No one but a practiced professional gardener can live and sleep beside a melon three-quarters ripe and a cabbage two-thirds grown without going out and tearing it off the stem. Even at that, it is not a bad plan to eat the stuff while you can. The most peculiar thing about gardening is that all of a sudden everything is too old to eat. Radishes change overnight from delicate young shoots not large enough to put on the table into huge plants seven feet high with a root like an Irish shillelagh. If you take your eyes off a lettuce bed for a week, the lettuces, not ready to eat when you last looked at them, have changed into a tall jungle of hollyhocks. Green peas are only really green for about two hours. Before that they are young peas, after that they are old peas. Cucumbers are the worst case of all. They change overnight from delicate little bulbs, obviously too slight and dainty to pick, to old cases of yellow leather filled with seeds. If I were ever to garden again, a thing which is out of the bounds of possibility, I should wait until a certain day and hour when all the plants were ripe, and then go out with a gun and shoot them all dead so that they could grow no more. But calculation, I repeat, is the bane of gardening. I knew, among our group of food producers, a party of young engineers, college men who took an empty farm north of the city as the scene of their summer operations. They took their coats off and applied college methods. They ran out first a base line, AB, and measured off from it lateral spurs, MN, OP, QR, and so on. From these they took side angles with a theodolite so as to get the edges of each of the separate plots of their land absolutely correct. I saw them working at it all through one Saturday afternoon in May. They talked, as they did it, of the peculiar ignorance of the so-called practical farmer. He never, so they agreed, uses his head. He never, I think I have their phrase correct, stops to think. In laying out his ground for use, it never occurs to him to try to get the maximum result from a given space. If a farmer would only realize that the contents of a circle represent the maximum of space enclosable in a given perimeter, and that a circle is merely a function of its own radius, what a lot of time he would save. These young men that I speak of laid out their field engineer fashion, with little white posts at even distances. They made a blueprint of the whole thing as they planted it. Every corner of it was charted out. The yield was calculated to a nicety. They had allowed for the fact that some of the stuff might fail to grow by introducing what they called a coefficient of error. By means of this, and by reducing the variation of autumn prices to a mathematical curve, those men not only knew already in the middle of May the exact yield of their farm to within half a bushel, they allowed, they said, a variation of half a bushel per fifty acres, but they knew beforehand, within a few cents, the market value that they would receive. The figures, as I remember them, were simply amazing. It seemed incredible that fifty acres could produce so much. Yet there were the plain facts in front of one, calculated out. The thing amounted practically to a revolution in farming. At least it ought to have, and it would have, if those young men had come again to hoe their field. 
but it turned out, most unfortunately, that they were busy. To their great regret, they were too busy to come. They had been working under a free and easy arrangement. Each man was to give what time he could every Saturday. It was left to every man's honor to do what he could. There was no compulsion. Each man trusted the others to be there. In fact, the thing was not only an experiment in food production, it was also a new departure in social cooperation. The first Saturday that those young men worked, there were, so I have been told, seventy-five of them driving in white stakes and running lines. The next Saturday there were fifteen of them planting potatoes. The rest were busy. The week after that there was one man hoeing weeds. After that, silence fell upon the deserted garden, broken only by the cry of the chickadee and the choo-choo, feeding on the waving heads of the thistles. But I have indicated only two or three of the ways of failing at food production. There are ever so many more. What amazes me, in returning to the city, is to find the enormous quantities of produce of all sorts offered for sale in the markets. It is an odd thing that last spring, by a queer oversight, we never thought, any of us, of this process of increasing the supply. If every patriotic man would simply take a large basket and go to the market every day and buy all that he could carry away, there need be no further fear of a food famine. And meantime, my own vegetables are on their way. They are in a soap-box with bars across the top, coming by freight. They weigh forty-six pounds, including the box. They represent the result of four months' arduous toil in sun, wind, and storm. Yet it is pleasant to think that I shall be able to feed with them some poor family of refugees during the rigor of the winter. Either that or give them to the hens. I certainly won't eat the rotten things myself. End of Part 14